Museum Revealed podcast brought to you by the Queensland Museum Network. Join me, Dr. Rob Bell, as we chat to the people that make museums so fascinating, from curators to scientists and researchers. We take a deep dive with conversations with these storytellers that inspire us to be curious about the past, make sense of the present, and, of course, consider our future. And I'm joined right now by Nick Hadnut, who is a curator of archaeology. And particularly, we're going to talk about one of the pieces in the Queensland Museum collection. But can you start maybe just by telling us archaeology? What in particular does that sort of field span? Yeah, sure. So archaeology is um, obviously it's the study of the of the human past through the material remains, the things that people have left behind. Uh, and so when we consider that kind of time period, archaeology spans from uh, millions of years ago to uh, you know pre-humans right through to today. Um, I focus on historical archaeology, which in an Australian context is really the time that foreigners started coming to Australia and visiting, uh, interacting with Aboriginal people. So for many people, that would be the Captain Cook kind of period, but yep. obviously Dutch people came earlier yeah. than that. And uh, we know Macassan and Southeast Asian traders came earlier than the Dutch as well. So we're talking around 16th, 15th, 16th century for that context within mm -hmm. Australia. But my focus is probably, I focus obviously working for the Queensland Museum, so I'm looking at Queensland historical archaeology. And so I'm interested in how Queensland developed post-European colonisation uh, and all of the things that came with that. Okay, excellent. Now I want to talk particularly about, I wouldn't say it's the most iconic, but certainly one of the iconic pieces in the Queensland Museum, uh, and that is Mephisto. Can you tell us uh, what is Mephisto and how did it end up in the collection? Sure. So Mephisto is a, is a name given to a, a German tank. Uh, so it's a, a First World War weapon of mass destruction, as it were. Mephisto is short for Mephistopheles. Uh, it's the name that the, the crew gave their tank. Uh, Mephistopheles is a, a character in a, a German play. He's a, a devil, an evil spirit that, um, that interacts with a, a person. So that character, Mephisto, is painted on the front of the tank. Um, the name Mephisto is painted on the tank. And, and Mephisto is a battle tank that was deployed by the Germans in, late in the First World War. And, and tanks were tanks were new then, weren't they? This was sort of they basically came about during the war. Yeah, it's interesting. I was kind of I've been thinking about that in preparation for the podcast. And absolutely, tanks as we know them today, steel armored boxes that are self-propelled that move across battlescapes and you know uh, mm -hmm. protect their occupants, but also enable them to deliver firepower against their enemy. Occurred in the First World War, but tanks themselves as a really broad concept of a a mobile vehicle that is designed to protect the occupants whilst they attack. Uh, I would say the first tanks were probably chariots, three, oh, four, yeah, five thousand years ago. So the idea of tanks is not new. Um, da Vinci might have even sketched exactly something right. that looked a bit yeah. like a tank. So yeah. um, tanks were designed. Uh, you know, some of the thoughts were: how do we breach? A, how do we siege a, a walled city? We need to protect the people who are going to, you know, uh, approach in. the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So uh, how can we do that? Cover them, things like that. So, yeah, the idea of a tank, as we know today, was created uh, very early in the First World War 
when it, it became apparent that the technology was available that we had an ability to construct a tank. So cars or engines in vehicles, had, they'd only been around for about 40 years. Mm. Uh, flight had just been discovered, you know, True. 10 years yeah. earlier. So it's like this coming together of technology, the ability to be able to forge steel, uh, to have engines that were powerful enough to move 30, 35 tonnes, to have machine guns that were water-cooled that didn't need replacing, that could be fired continuously uh, and the ability to move heavy heavy firepower um, across a battlefield is the way we know tanks today so so i guess when people look at mephisto in a way they're sort of looking at at a prototype of of tanks in a way because yeah. it's it's when we first started discovering what these things might look like what form they might take and how they would move across the the landscape or the battlefield yeah absolutely in fact mephisto is one of the first german tanks made they made them kind of in batches uh, and it's different to the other tanks that were made at the same time so even that point of customization was occurring as they were rolling them out and deploying them so mephisto is slightly different to the other tanks that's how you can identify them in the photographs but one of the things that's really fascinating is if you look at the the ideas around tanks that were being designed by professional designers and also the you know journalists who were trying to come up with ideas they're fantastical there are these amazing spaceship looking medieval <laughs> things so you know some of them were three or four stories high that were oh, okay. roll like these behemoths that were rolling across the battlefield with with giant spikes sticking out of them <laughs> it's really fascinating and i think some of that comes into the way that tanks were first conceived in a military concept that they were part of the navy that uh, this heavy armoured kind of thing is something the Navy's very mm -hmm. good at, so let's get the Navy on board, and they created the, the land ship. Okay. And so imaginations just spiralled out of control, <laughs> how you could have these huge dreadnought-type machines that would roll across the battlefield and overcome the obstacles of trench warfare and annihilate the enemy. Uh, and then you had the exact opposite, where the French in particular created two-person tanks. They were tiny, oh. very fast machines just with a machine gun mounted that were, they called, the, the British had a version called a whippet tank, which was designed to move very rapidly across the battlefield and machine gun. Mm. So, yeah, was the, that's the idea is that these, these machines were being conceived at that time and they went from fantastical to effective. Yeah, yeah, around the whole, the gamut of the spectrum. So tell me then, how does a World War One tank end up in Brisbane, particularly given that it weighs 35 tonnes. And I suppose I would have thought after war, all of that stuff would have been left to rust or yes. destroyed. Yeah, so I think this comes back to a thing we, it's known as the trophy tradition. It's, okay, a, it's sure. a matter of taking taking something from the enemy the to take it war. home. Yeah, exactly. And so um, within a year of f the First World War breaking out, Australia had created an entire unit or department within the army that that sole focus was collecting trophies oh, right. uh, and sending them back and so that idea of the propaganda of being able to distribute something through melbourne sydney public marches this is what our boys are doing on the yep. front lines this is something that you can only read about or perhaps see a photograph at best but more likely you've seen uh, an illustration of the front lines this is a tangible thing from yep. that place that's on the other side of the world. And so Mephisto, as a trophy, is highly significant. It, it's the first German tank that was captured by the Allies, uh, and it was captured by a group of men who were predominantly Queenslanders. The, the battalion was some, some Tasmanian, some Queenslanders, 
Uh, and the architect of the idea of catching this trophy is uh, Major Robinson, who's a Queenslander. Uh, and so Mephisto was deployed in, on 24th of April 1918 uh, against a, an Allied position. And it was a, a really interesting moment because that's when the Germans really decided to deploy, to, to first scan the battlefield. So I guess I have to go back a little bit in that um, when tanks were first deployed, particularly by the British, they just felt they could send them across the battlefield and they would uh, make it across there quite happily and then attack. Wreak havoc in the empire, yep. But, but they can't. Because of the size and the, the landscape, it was you know, either incredibly muddy or pockmarked mm. and incredibly difficult to walk over, let alone drive okay, over. Yep. And so their early attempts of mass tank movement were failures. Uh, and people just didn't have the faith in them. They thought these things are extraordinarily expensive to make. And effectively useless. Why, mm -hmm. why do we have? But then people were kind of thinking, well, hang on, if the conditions are right and we use them in the right way, then perhaps they'll, they'll work. And so the conditions, obviously, you need a, a flatter ground and mass tanks and all this kind of stuff. So the tactics of using tanks were being developed from 1914, 15 right through. Now, the Germans on this particular uh, movement in April, they deployed, I believe it was nine tanks in, in uh, three formations that were working together. And Mephisto was one of the three for, in one of the formations. And unfortunately, Mephisto got stuck, uh, drove into a shell hole. Oh. Uh, and was basically lost on the battlefield. And the reason Mephisto got stuck on the battlefield is because the driver and the commander of the vehicle sit quite high in the tank. They're four or five metres above the ground. But the, the way it's built, there's a huge black spot in front of them oh, so they where they can't see. see. <laughs> uh, and also, when you think about it, it's not a Sunday drive. You're driving no. through a battlefield. There's shell fire. There's machine there's guns, grenades. <laughs> Of smoke, gas, all yeah. kinds of crazy things are happening. And you're driving an archaic machine which effectively goes about walking pace okay. so you're a really easy target. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to try and zigzag to avoid incoming fire across a battlefield. So it's understandable that you know these things were lost regularly on the battlefield. Uh, and that's the case with this one. It, Mephisto was in no man's land. The Germans were to the south a couple of hundred metres, their main trench or less than that. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Australian line was to the north within about 100 metres and Mephisto sat there for uh, all of June into July. Uh, and then uh, it was observed. There's fantastic aerial photographs taken by the French reconnaissance planes of the battlefield and you can see this little tiny pixelated <laughs> dot and that's Mephisto sitting there. And then at some point uh, in, in early June, 13th of June, there was a series of really significant actions by the Australians where they pushed the Germans back. And they pushed them back enough that at one point, Mephisto was behind them by about only 20 metres or so. They were very close, but they managed to get past Mephisto. And that's when Robinson decided that, hey, this would be a great opportunity to try and capture a German tank and drag it off the battlefield. And so this incredible operation ensues and they grab the tank, they get the tank away from the Germans. And then at that point, this political drama unfolds of who owns the tank. So the Australians already had their trophy department ready to go. <laughs> the the English had their trophy department. This is the first tank a it's lot of people wanted this, yeah, okay. And as soon as word got out that the Queenslanders had captured it, the, the person running the trophy department, for want of a better word for Australia, contacted a Queensland Premier and said, you, got, you guys have captured a, a German tank. You should claim it. We should claim it for Queensland because it's such a big deal. And uh, there was a, a few people got involved and eventually it was agreed that it would come to Queensland. 
but only temporarily because there were so many trophies flooding into Australia from overseas that the Commonwealth decided we, we need an Australian war memorial. We need a war museum to tell this incredible story of the First World War. And that museum is going to be in Canberra, which doesn't exist. It's not a place. <laughs> so we'll put it in Melbourne and then we'll move it to Canberra. And then we intervened in it. The ship on the way down to Melbourne pulled into Brisbane and it got unloaded on the docks and dragged around to the Queensland Museum um, almost a year to the day after it was captured. Wow, what an amazing story. Uh, look, there's a whole lot more to find out about Mephisto and we are going to find that out very shortly, so stay with us. Do you want to learn more about Mephisto? Available for purchase at the Queensland Museum shop is the latest addition to the Queensland Museum Discovery Guide series, Mephisto Technology, War and Remembrance. Shop online today at shop.qm.qld.gov.au. Welcome back to the Museum Revealed podcast and we are talking all about Mephisto, the World War I German tank. So it now resides in the Queensland Museum, but it's um, travelled quite extensively, which for a 35-tonne tank is probably not that easy. Can you give us a bit of a, an idea of where it's gone um, and at what sort of times of its existence? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, the tank obviously captured in uh, the, on the Western Front. Uh, it was then, over a series of weeks, transported by rail and then ship to, uh, I believe, into London and then loaded onto another ship and brought to Brisbane. And so just those little journeys themselves are, you know, hundreds, thousands of kilometres. Yeah. Um, just the, the process of collecting the tank by the, the 26th Battalion was difficult. They spent a couple of nights filling in all the shell holes behind the tank to make it a flat platform. Uh, then the night of, they arranged to have uh, aircraft through the night flying low reconnaissance to drown out the noise of oh. their activities. They had intermittent shell fire again to try and mask the noise of what they were doing. So a lot of effort just to disguise well, the fact they that they were stealing a tank, if yeah. you like. Yeah, and, and I guess the thing is that we, we think of Mephisto as an old tank, but in, in 1918, this is cutting-edge technology. Yep. It's like us having the ability to take a, a you know a, a, an American submarine. Sure, yep. You know, millions of dollars of investment have gone into creating this thing. How does it work? What did they do better than us? What can we know? So this is uh, in, in espionage as well. Being valuable, I guess, to the Allied exactly. forces back then. Yeah, and they course. needed to get it in one piece. So once they were ready to collect it, they organised with the British Tank Carrying Company to bring up three heavy vehicles to tow it. And in that instance, when they were towing it, the, the Mephisto itself has uh, grappling hooks on the front that are tow hooks. So they uh, attach their um, cables to, to those hooks and also just pass them through the, the observation slots and dragged it and just so happens when they were doing that the Germans for whatever reason picked that moment to bombard the entire area with gas oh, no. and so the 13 volunteers who volunteered to do this really dangerous work knowing if if the Germans were tipped off they would direct all their shell fire to stopping this they crept out were gassed all of them ended up in hospital as a result um, so two of them were severely injured in the head and uh, were shot. They all survived. And then it kind of, it was dragged about five kilometres back from the front lines 
uh, and was hidden there under um, camouflage nets yep. to stop the German aerial observation. And at that point, it started to become graffiti. The troops walking past would put their name Brains on it. Okay, and yep. Things like that started to happen. That's where you f- see the first photographs of Mephisto. And then there's a, a couple of iconic images of it being lifted out of the, the hold of the ship onto the wharf down at Norman Wharf in Brisbane here. And, and those ones, they basically put the cables directly under the treads and just lifted the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, easily lifted it out, put it down on the road, and then dragged it on its own treads all the way up into the Gregory Terrace Museum and put it on display uh, at the front of the museum. And then over time, it got moved a couple of times. Different structures were put over it. And then in the in the mid-70s, it was loaded on a low loader and brought into Brisbane here. Sorry, that would be in the, in the 80s. It was brought to the uh, South Bank Museum. Yep. And it was moved twice at South Bank as... I guess as conservation standards were changed, we realised we needed to protect it from humidity and so it got put into a, an enclosure. And then uh, in 2015, it was transported down to Canberra, um, which was a, an amazing journey. Uh, two days we took to take the, the tank down. Uh, because of the, the width of the tank, it's far wider than normal load. We mm-hmm. could only drive through daylight hours and we took it down in June so the days are shorter okay. uh, so we had to park on the side of the road with a, a iconic <laughs> a tank, tank <laughs> just past Coonabarabran on a truck stop and we had security guards site. working the night to maintain the security of the of the tank and then uh, Monday morning we drove into Canberra and we had to take a number of side roads and they had restrictions on when we could take a heavy vehicle into Canberra so we had to work, liaise with all these local governments and all of this stuff had to happen and it went. It, they put it on display there as the world's rarest tank. And then in uh, 2018, 2019, the tank came back into Brisbane. And we had to install it, shoehorn it effectively into the Anzac Legacy Gallery, which is quite tricky because all the other lifts we had clear access above the tank. We were able to drop uh, you know, crane cables down and okay, lift it yep. vertically. Whereas to get into a room, we had to use this amazing technology, build ramps, and then basically slide the tank on these uh, really heavy-duty, um, they're, they're effectively gas lifters. They're these large pads that uh, f- sit flat on the floor, and when you pump air through them, they lift like oh, skates, okay. yep. uh, and they carry easily up to 10 tonnes each, and so we positioned them under then lifted it and then skated it. There were six of us hand-pushed the tank. Just, just skated a 35-ton yeah, tank in position. In position, and... Dropped it millimetre perfect where we needed it. Wow. That's where the tank is today. Wow, that is quite amazing. And I imagine when it was first, um, as you say, dragged to the old museum site in Brisbane, a 35-tonne tank probably wouldn't have been very kind to what the roads might have looked like back then, which wouldn't have been suited to a 35-tonne tank. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, The Brisbane City Council were uh, involved in... They sent two steamrollers down to, to drag the tank. That's how they needed to move it. Uh, obviously, it still rolled on its its Those tracks. Tracks. It was only a year old, so in terms of its manufacture, it was quite young. Um, so it was able to move, but when the tank was first captured, there was a lot of damage around the fuel tanks and the radiators. So it wasn't the engine didn't work. So they had to drag it. And the newspaper at the time commented that once the steamrollers finished moving the tank into the new museum, they then patched the road, turned around, and <laughs> patched the road on the, the way back to the wharf. Yeah. Amazing. And then look, when you look at the tank these days in the museum, the first thing that I kind of notice when I go and look around is all of the, I guess, the marks from its time on the battlefield, you know, uh, shell holes, bullet holes, all of the damage and all of that sort of thing. Um, It must have been incredibly 
intense to be inside that tank, I imagine. Um, the noise, that sort of thing. Did you have any yeah. idea of what they went through, the people who crewed these things? Yeah, so I guess, uh, I guess there's a few clues that give us an idea as to how horrific it was to be in an A7V German tank. Um, the first clue is that the tank, the, the, the people who operated the tank always preferred to travel on the roof. So they always sat up on the roof. There's no way they wanted to be inside the tank because that's where the two heavy-duty diesel engines are mounted with the radiator. So immediately you've got uh, two, two engines that are driving 35 tonnes. So there's a lot of heat, a lot of stink from the, the fuel yeah, hot and, stinky and, and the noise of the... They, were, you know, they, they did have exhaust systems, but they didn't travel mm. far out of the vehicle. No. And that's just moving it from A to B. So you're just driving it around. It's horrible. Second thing is we know that the people selected to work in the tank were from different areas. Some of them were elite machine gunners. Some of them were artillery people to be able to operate. The, the different, some of them were just mechanics. But they were all basically conscripted. People didn't volunteer to go into the tanks. Initially, it was, oh, this is a great idea. We get uh, hot, hot food, we get a bed, we're not stuck on the front lines, how wonderful. But as soon as they started breaking down and being pinned down under shell fire, uh, the destruction, if a shell direct hits, the fuel tanks exploding or the, the munitions inside the tank exploding, the realisation was it, it was hellish. Uh, and then, obviously, if you're driving across a battlefield against a, a front line crewed by thousands of people with small arm fire, they're all directing their fire at you. So you've just got this continuous drumming of machine gun bullets, shells, grenades, all striking the outside of the tank, which would be deafening. You've got the motor plowing away behind you, directly under your feet. And then when those uh, impacts are striking the, the armour of the tank, the inside of the armour spalls, the small shards of steel fly off the inside of the armour and, and you know, people's eyes are particularly vulnerable. But any, um, any part of their body that is exposed is now exposed to small amounts of steel being penetrated. So even, even the bullets, even though they couldn't penetrate the steel as such, they would still get hit by stuff on the inside. Yeah, that's exactly right. Huh. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound very pleasant at all, Nick. I'm going to cross tank operator off my jobs of the future list, <laughs> particularly if it involves a World War One tank. Uh, look, super interesting to find out all that stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I've found out a lot and I'm sure you'll have found out quite a bit as well. Thanks for joining us on the Museum Revealed podcast. Uh, what did you uncover in this episode? Are you interested in learning some more? Well, follow the Queensland Museum on social media at QLD Museum or head to our website qm.qld.gov.au and while you're there you can sign up for our e-news list so you can be up to date on everything. And don't forget there are show notes that go along with this podcast so you can find out even more about Mephisto. And until next time, stay curious.